Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. If you haven't received the invitation um, from me yet, a personal invite, if I haven't talked with you or if you haven't heard me say it from up front, I'm going to say it again now that we hope that you can make it on Christmas Eve, this Friday, Christmas Eve service at 6.30. And also, if you are willing to bring some cookies for our Christmas Eve service, uh, Jill Ackerman will be in the back in the coffee shop area after service, and you can let her know. We would like to provide some of that as a way of hospitality for people. I read an article this week about the importance of traditions and um, family traditions and things that you do, like for the holidays, going and getting the tree together as a family or decorating the tree as a family or watching Elf or Polar Express or sleeping underneath the Christmas tree as a family the night before Christmas. The importance of having these types of traditions and it's good for us as just as human beings to have things that we look for that anchor us in the most important things, warm and loving relationships. And it's a way of reminding ourselves of the importance of relationship with those that we love. So it's important that we have those things as families, that we create those things as families, but it's also important that we have those as an extended community church family. There's something really good about that as well. So one of our traditions is a Christmas Eve service. We'll be doing the whole candlelight thing. And they're gonna be real candles. We're gonna light the candles and pass them down. We're gonna sing the silent night. We're gonna have a fun time with it because I love all the Christmas stuff. So we will be doing that. And it's just a way for us to pause together in the midst of moving around and celebrating with different people for us to have an opportunity as a church family to come together and remember together what Jesus has done for us. So hope you can make that Friday. Jeez, Friday. That's crazy. Christmas Eve is Friday, 6.30 p.m. right here. I also want to remind you that we have a, this message is recorded and Pastor Al puts it up on our podcast every week. You can search Southside Worcester. Um, the messages for Christmas Eve this year have been a little bit more technical, so it's probably going to be in. It's going to be the same thing today. So it'll probably be hard to catch everything and write everything down as you hear it. So you can re-listen to those on our podcast, or you can watch it again online. Uh, we stream online on Facebook. We do a live stream, so you can watch the replay. But I would encourage you this morning to not try to keep up with all the technical stuff that we're going to be covering. Um, just be here and listen, and then if you want to take notes, you can go back through the podcast and take notes. So, fourth week of Advent. Advent in the church calendar is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's a way, we've, we say it's a way to pump the brakes of your life. It's a way to slow down and make space to actually consider some pretty important things, like God becoming a human being to rescue us. And it looks back, Advent is designed to have you look back and think about why is it important that Jesus came the first time. But then it's also meant to have you look forward to when Jesus comes the second time. We live in between two Advents. The first time he came and the second time he's coming. 
which could happen at any moment. That's where we live right now. And so thinking about those two historical events, one that's happened, one that has yet to happen, is, is meant to shape how we live now. That's what Advent is about. Because the question is, why should we care that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago? And today, we're going to actually highlight some of the changes that happens in us personally, how we change as human beings because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, the first Advent. One of my fond memories of, of being a youth pastor is we took a group of students to Ocean City, New Jersey, and um, we were trying to train them in some practical ministry equipping, and one of the things that we taught the students is how to share a testimony. So for Christians, you know, that's, if, you under, if you're a Christian, you understand that lingo of what's your testimony. Other people, it sounds a little bit strange, but it's essentially how we came to know Jesus and how that's changed us. So we gave them three questions to consider. The first question is, what were you like before Jesus? And the second question is, how did you meet Jesus? And the third question is, how have you changed or how are you different now because you've met Jesus? And for teenagers, you know, the, the answers usually aren't all that dramatic. And not everyone has a dramatic, life-changing testimony. Sometimes it's just continuing on the path that God already had them on of being an ethical and good person. But for some of our adults, it was amazing hearing some of the dramatic changes in their lives. Like, God is, has completely transformed them in some very obvious ways. Some of them were talking about friends that hadn't seen them for years, and they saw them after they met Jesus, and it had been several years since they met Jesus, and their friends couldn't even hardly recognize them. Like, what on earth has happened to you? You are a completely different person. And that's what Christmas is about. Jesus came to enable us to be different people. So this is something we should expect to see in Christians. When we begin a relationship with Jesus, we'll see in this passage that he makes us into a new person. And we ought to be able to look back at our lives and see real progress. And scripture helps by telling us what to look for. I mean, Paul makes it very clear the type of things and the types of ways that we should be transforming. Always. And it never changes until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, we'll just, he'll make us perfect instantly. But until then, we're growing in our character. So if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you should be able to name specific ways that you've changed over the course of the last couple of years. Because it is a long obedience in the same direction. Christian growth isn't measured in Moments and hours and days, typically it's measured in years. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be able to look back last couple years and name. Here's how I've changed. I'm more patient. Whatever it looks like. But it should be happening for all of us. In today's passage, uh, Paul begins by describing some of the ways we ought to be growing as Christians. And then he reminds the people what they were like before Jesus. So he gives us this contrast. So it's almost this, like the questions that I was asking, how have you changed since Jesus? Paul kind of shows us in this passage today the ways that we can expect some of these changes. All possible because of 
Christmas because Jesus became one of us. He needed to become one of us in order to help us become new people. The context of this, and if you want to look in your notes in the bulletin or if you, can, you want to look it up in your Bibles, it's Titus 3, 1 through 6. It's an odd passage for a Christmas passage, but you have an odd pastor, so it's okay. And let me give you a little bit of the background of this. Paul's writing to a man named Titus. Titus is like a pastor figure in the Bible. They, Titus was living temporarily on an island called Crete. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul and Titus had went there and done some ministry work together. A lot of people came to know Jesus and put their faith in him personally as Paul and Titus were explaining who he was and what he's done. And then Paul left and Titus stuck around because he was trying to gather up all the people who were Christians and put them in communities and put them in churches and raise up leaders to pastor those churches. So that's the context of this, of this passage that we're going to look at today. <clears throat> Starts Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what Paul says to Titus. Remind them, the people that are believers now, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So I, I think we'll pause there, and the first thing to say is, Paul's saying, remind the people to act this way. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't make us passive. Like, there's real, genuine steps. There's real things that we need to do when we become Christians. God gives us the motivation to do those things. He gives us the power to do those things, but we actually have to take the step. We don't just sit back passively and say, okay, God, change me. Like there's, no, remind them to be this way. We have to act in accordance with who we are in Christ. So there is a thing called divine sovereignty where God is all powerful and he's going to change you. And there's a thing called human agency, which means we have responsibility as people too. And if you remove either one of those, you're outside of what the Bible says is actually true about our growth. Both of them coexist. And I've said it before, don't ask me how to explain how that works. I have no idea. It's above my pay grade, but we will find out one day. But both are true. Let's go on. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Ready for every good work. This is one of the ways that we put on display how God is changing us to the world around us. Christians are people that walk around and say to the world around us, how can I help you? It's what we do. That's what ready for every good work means. We help people. I mean, it really comes down to being that simple. We serve people. We love people. We see what we can do to make people's lives a bit easier. And 99% of this is having the capacity to initiate. We're not waiting for people to tell us. We are scanning the horizon of our lives. We're looking at the relationships and we're saying, how can what you've done for me, God, or what you've given me, help the people around me? That's what we do. Ready for every good work. It's part of being a Christian. So much better than some of the things that we think actually shows off Christian growth. All right. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. Again, things that they should not be doing, ways that God is changing them. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Let's just stop there for a second. Because when the world looks at 
a community of Christians. Like, seriously, let's get very concrete. Let's get very black and white here. When the world looks at a community of people who say they're Jesus followers, you know what one of the things they should say about them, about us? I might not always agree with them. I might not believe all the things that they believe, but man, they are the least argumentative people in the world. That's what people should be saying about us. How we doing? <laughs> to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. I mean, we're only two verses in. <laughs> this is supernatural change that we can't do on our own. I mean, perfect courtesy to other Christians, not just other Christians, to people that are like us, it's not what it says, to people that like the things that we like, it's not what it says, to people that have the same opinions that we have, it's not what it says. What does it say? Perfect courtesy to all people. It's just what the Bible says. <laughs> so you can't get mad at me. You've got to get mad at the Bible. Now Paul transitions. Now he just gives a, a splattering, a little bit of handful a, a way of ways that we ought to be different and changing and transforming. But then he reminds them. He tells, he tells Titus, uh, remind them what they used to be like before Jesus. Here's what it should look like. Remind them what they used to be like. Now the Cretans were wild. And they had a reputation for being wild. Actually, Paul jokes about it earlier in Titus. Um, one of their own uh, poets says something about them. They're not great people, and they know it, and the world knows it. They know their reputation. So he says, remind them what they used to be like. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is what it looks like when your life is not controlled by the Spirit of God. This is what we do. The Bible's view of humanity, and this is going to be a technical theological term, the Bible's view of a human being before Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, lives inside of that human being. You know what the Bible's view of that is? We're not just good people that do bad things sometimes. You know what the Bible says that we are? Radically corrupt. The, the Latin root for radical means, it comes from root. That means from the core, from the roots, we are corrupt. This is after sin. This is our view of humanity, not just good people. Basically good people that make some mistakes. No, we're corrupt, radically corrupt, completely, from the core. Corrupt people apart from Christ. Tough pill to swallow. It's hard to swallow, and that clashes with some people's worldview, even inside the church, but that's what it is. And what that means is that we can't become good people by merely changing our behavior. Our very core needs to change. And actually, we need to become a new person. Because who we are apart from Christ isn't going to be able to produce the type of things we see in verse 1 and 2. It would be like 
and I've used this illustration before, but it'd be like taking a rotten apple, radically corrupt, taking a rotten apple, it's gross, nasty, and painting it red on the outside. That's what it would be like to try to live like a Christian without becoming a new person, still being radically corrupt, still being rotten on the inside, at the soul level. Jesus had another term that he used. He called it whitewashed tombs. Now, he, he called people that. Jesus would say some hard things to people. He actually he said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You're like a, a cave back then. A tomb was like, typically like a cave. You're like someone that would go up and just spray that white with paint. So it looks, it's glimmering. It looks nice. Maybe you do some, you plant some flowers by it. You just make it look beautiful on the outside and you open it up and you smell the stench of death. That's what Jesus said about people who tried to act Christian on the inside without becoming a new person. They're still rotten on the inside. So Christianity isn't about acting more moral. It's about becoming an altogether different creation. I had a funny example of this. When I was in college, I made the resolution to stop cussing. Like We were all sitting in my friend's apartment. We were... It was a New Year's Eve party, and I just wrote down this resolution, I'm going to stop cussing, because I wanted to be a better Christian. I started going to this Bible study, and I was getting, grew up in the church, but I was getting really interested in God late in college, like very interested. And I said, I'm going to, and I didn't understand this yet, so I'm going to stop cussing. Grew up in a locker room. I'm not going to do it anymore. So I managed for a couple months to stop cussing, and you know what? The, the anger was just still seething inside of me. It was still there beneath the surface. My anger was still there. I just was restraining myself from saying certain words. Big deal. I was still angry. I needed to become more new, more renewed through Jesus. So Paul's describing ways that this radical corruption manifested itself in these people before they came to faith in Christ. And there's a couple more things I want to say about this, because you might be looking at this, these, you know, verse 3 and seeing all these ways of bad behavior as a human being. And you might be saying to yourself, I know some Christians that act like that. Well, touche. <laughs> and just because someone calls himself a Christian doesn't mean they are. Um... Someone told me, or someone said once, I overheard it, that you're going to be surprised by two things when you get to heaven. You're going to be surprised by who's there, and you're going to be surprised by who's not there. You're going to be like, good to see you. I did not expect to see you. This is great, man. Wow, good on you. And then you're going to be like, Where's, uh, has anybody seen... Because some people who profess the loudest to be Christians, who profess judgment on the rest of the world, might not actually be in the family. And some people who are most insistent that they're Christians are the ones I'm most nervous about. Another thing you might say as you're reading this, you know, I know someone who isn't a Christian and yet is a very ethical and moral person. Just a really good person. Is it possible for someone who has not been made new in Christ to be a moral, ethical person? Of course it is. Are you kidding me? Absolutely it is. It's possible for someone, there's probably, I mean, I guarantee there's people who are not 
Christians who maybe have other religious beliefs or atheist, agnostic, and they're really, really, really moral people. What do you do with that? Better than most of us. You know that's true. You know people like that. Like, man, they're not a Christian, but they're such a good person. Of course that's possible. And what we need to keep in mind is a couple things. One is you have to look at the trajectory of a life. So not just where you're at now. What will you look like in 10 years? What will you look like in 50 years? Are you moving towards a gentler, more loving person, more compassionate, which are three of the big words that someone that God uses to describe people who are in Christ in Scripture? Are you on that trajectory? What are you going to look like in a million years? You're going to be alive in a million years. You're either going to be becoming more and more the person God made you to be in a perfect state with Jesus here on a new created earth, or you're going to become more and more a shadow version of yourself, the worst version of yourself. You're going to be in one of those two places and in one of those two states. Look at the trajectory. Um, and the other thing that I want to say about that is biblical morality... At the heart of all of our ethics, at the heart of all of our morality, is this. Biblical morality starts with surrender to and dependence upon God. If you want to see the central ethic of a person who claims to be Christian, it's dependence. It's not niceness. It's dependence. Because when we depend on God and when we surrender to him, he makes all those other things happen in us. For the Christian... It all starts there. That's the central piece of our ethic. Surrender to our creator and dependence on him. That is the heart behind every moral decision we make. That is the power behind every moral action we take. There's where it's at. We're becoming better people because we are trusting God to energize that process. All right, so... If God is asking us to surrender to him and to depend on him, how do we know he's good? How do we know he's trustworthy? How do we know it's safe to surrender to him? How do we know it's safe to depend on him? That's a very real question and the answer is, what if he were to become a human being? And he wasn't just some invisible entity, spiritual entity somewhere that we're not even sure where. That's far removed from us, and we could never see him. What if he became a human being, a man, and we could either see him with our own eyes or we could read about what he was like? And that's the purpose and that's the reason for Christmas. Because verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's the tip of the hat to Christmas. He saved us. We do get to see what he's like. We didn't get to meet him face to face and in person. We will one day. But other people did, and they wrote stories down about him, and they wrote things that he did, very important things that he did that enabled us to be a part of his 
family. Now, it says that he appeared to save us. What does it mean to be saved? Again, technical. This is a valid, valid question. If you're exploring Christianity, this is a very important question, and I get it. I get it. You know, we hear Christians telling people, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. What are you talking about? After college, I had a handful of friends that played in the league. They played in the NBA. And I can imagine telling them, you know, you need to be saved. They'd be like, (laughs) from what? From traveling all over the country and being famous and being a gazillionaire and having adoring fans everywhere I go and living in a mansion and having a lake house and like, what do I need to be saved from? This terrible life that I live? I don't understand how I need to be saved and we can get some clarity on this by understanding what it actually means and what it actually does not mean to be saved because that's a legitimate question and when people ask you that that aren't Jesus followers, you should take that very seriously because I'm not sure if we give very good answers to that question. You know? So let's look at very quickly, what does it not mean to be saved? To not be saved is to live a life that is separated forever from the goodness of God. And again, I'm sorry, I'm going through this, and this is not in your notes, but again, listen to it on podcast. If you need to anchor your thoughts in the word-for-word ways that I say these things, Listen to it, pause it, write it down. I have to do that too because you might need to think about this a little bit more because it would be really good if your friends ask you at some point, what's the reason for the hope that's in you? For you to be able to articulate that and spend some time thinking about it. This is like the most important things you could possibly think about. So listen to it again if you need to and write it out. But to not be saved is to live a life that is separated forever from the goodness of God. It means to be separated because you have a father who created everything, who is all-powerful, who's crazy about you, who wants to do good things for you, who wants to give good things to you for the rest of eternity, and you've cut yourself off from him. That's what it means to not be saved. There is a source of goodness that is eternal and that is personal, and you want nothing to do with him. That's what it means to not be saved. We think that our source of goodness and the good things that happen to us is from everything else but him. To be a Christian is to realize, no, it actually, the real stuff comes from him, and there's only one way. It's through Jesus. That's how I become part of his family again. So to be saved, now this is super technical, and I just feel, I'm, I kind of nerded out on this, but this is, this is very technical. So listen to it again if you want to, but this is what I believe it means to be saved. To be rescued from a life separated from God by our sins into an everlasting life as a beloved member of God's family and kingdom and all the benefits thereof. All made possible by Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. Means to be God's son or daughter because of Jesus. 
You're Jesus' friend or brother or sister, and you're the father, son, or daughter, all empowered by the Spirit. Because we believe that God is three in one going after the same mission, and that is restoring everything that's ever been created through Christ into the most beautiful version of itself, starting with humans. That's something to spend some time thinking about. Now, you might be thinking, well, aren't you special? You get to be a part of God's family. Did you earn it? You might still be thinking you earned that. But the very next part of the verse, follow along, right at verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. There are zero grounds for any Christian ever to be judgmental or self-righteous or think that we're better than people. There's no grounds for that. None. If you're a Christian and you think you're better than another person for any reason or more deserving of God's love than any other person, you don't get it yet. You don't understand the gospel yet. Because you didn't get into God's family because of how good you are. And you don't stay in God's family because of how good you are. And if we Christians really believe this, we would be the most humble and non-judgmental people on the face of the planet. And again, how are we doing? It's not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not because of anything that we did. This was a rescue mission that we didn't initiate. We didn't ask for it. He didn't look for it. He came looking for us. Let's finish that verse. But according to his own mercy, why were you saved? If you're in God's family, why? His mercy. That's why. You did zero to deserve it. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on, his, on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, Regeneration literally means new birth. It's a common metaphor we use in Scripture. It means to be born again. And we all start in the same place. I've heard other people say that we're wandering orphans on earth, searching the planet for significance and meaning and fulfillment and identity. That's what you do when you don't know your dad. You look for other things to make you feel important. And it isn't until we're spiritually born again into God's family that we find out who we actually are and why we're actually here. And we move from a wandering orphan to an adopted and beloved child of the Father, as I heard someone say before so beautifully. And that's why Jesus came. That's the end of the story. He came to find us. Lost brothers and sisters who have cut themselves off from the Father and bring them back home. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And I'll, you know, Jesus, if you're listening and if you're paying attention, tells us quite clearly what his mission is. He said it as clearly as you can say it. If you're into mission statements, this is his mission statement. This is his vision. This is his purpose, his reason for coming to earth. He says it in Luke 19.10. He's talking about himself in third person, which he does sometimes. I wouldn't suggest talking that way, but Jesus is Jesus. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to search the world for all the wandering orphans and to bring them home and to make them new. He's still looking today. And if you're here and you're not yet part of his family, maybe today he's looking for you. And he's not here in person anymore. You're not going to see him waiting in the parking lot when we leave to talk with you. The way that he's decided in this part of history to speak to you and to find you, and it's still Jesus looking, is through his word and through his spirit. It's reading or hearing someone read or hearing someone talk about scripture. This is why we value preaching so much. This is why preaching is so important. Because this is where you hear the voice of Jesus. The Bible is the ever-present voice of Jesus. And it's also the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. And He puts the Spirit inside of you to tell you, you need Him. You need to be restored to God. You need the thing that only Jesus can do for you. You need the fact that He came and lived a perfect life. The fact that he died for your sins, paid the punishment, and that he rose again so that you can have this new life. The way that Jesus is searching for you today is you're hearing this and it's making sense, in other words. Or you're hearing this and you're strangely drawn to it. Or you're a bit more curious. And my invitation is the same thing that Jesus always invited people to do. And that is to stop everything you're doing, maybe just metaphorically, and follow him. And put your faith in him. And put your trust in him. And surrender to him. And give up trying to discover your identity and your worth and your value and your meaning and your purpose apart from him. And he will make you new. You can do that right now. You don't have to say it in any fancy way. You can just say, whatever it is that Greg was talking about, I want that. And if you do that, let us know. Let somebody know. Uh, Alice is going to come up here and lead us in communion, um, but could I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, please? God, Help us to never help us to never get over what you've done for us and for that to never grow old but to be a gathering, a community of people who grow in wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.